Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for the ability to be able to come here and celebrate your coming. Thank you for the ability to be able to come here and celebrate your presence with us. The fact that you have taken hold of our lives and transformed us just by your presence. I pray that during this time, we would, we would put all our hope in you. And, and believe your promises. All of the wonderful things that you have said that you're going to do. Right now, we see and we feel hurt and pain and strife, but you've promised that all of that is going to go away. And I pray that we would hope in that. We would hope in your word above, above everything else and that that would bring us to joy and that we would have peace in your midst. I pray that you would speak through me during this time and speak to us, cause us to realize new things, further depths of your glory and, and worth. Say what needs to be said and move in this room and calm us with an overwhelming feeling of peace. And in Jesus' name, amen. Could you go ahead and put that symbol up? So I want to show you something that, uh, if you've seen it recently, evokes recent events, right? Have, has everybody seen this? Can you raise your hand if you've seen this? Okay, cool. So about half the room has, half the room hasn't. So I'll go ahead and uh, give you the lowdown then. So about a month ago, on November 13th, 2015, the world grieved as it witnessed the aftermath of a series of coordinated terrorist attacks against hundreds of people in the city of Paris, France. During those attacks, 130 people were killed and 368 people were wounded in either suicide bombings or mass shootings that were carried out by several individuals who were all reported to have been operating under the banner of the Islamic State. Within hours of the attacks, an artist named Jean Julien, I don't speak French, I'll get, that's my best shot, uh, who had been listening to the news uh, and, and checking to see if all his friends and his family members were okay. He, he sat down at some point and, and he gave voice to his emotions in a way that seemed most natural for him by drawing. He was, he was an artist. He said in an interview, I reacted graphically. Just drawing something spontaneously with, with pen and paper and then sharing it as a raw reaction. With so much violence and tragedy, we just want a bit of peace. The graphic itself uh, is a play, and you, you probably recognize this. It's a play on an internationally recognized symbol, the so-called peace symbol. Uh, he combined the traditional mark with another instantly recognizable symbol of Paris, the Eiffel Tower. So he, he did it in a way that's, that's so natural that both concepts are communicated 
uh, in as quickly as a glance. Like you can just look at that and get the idea. Uh, and so because of that, because it was just instantly recognizable and it said that peace and Paris, um, it caught on quickly. Uh, it was communicated, um, posted, reposted on websites, social media accounts all over the world in less than a day. This was popping up on like people that you know, uh, their Facebook account, their Twitter account. Uh, it, it spread quickly. It was taken up by millions of people as a way to communicate solidarity around an ideal, the desire for world peace, and specifically in this case, peace for Paris. In the midst of horrible violence, the world was crying out for peace. Seeing that symbol reinvented and, and repopularized made me wonder about how we got the original. Um, I learned that it was designed, in, and you might know this, uh, it was designed in 1958 for a rally in London, England for the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Uh, the mark was made of two overlapping signals from semaphore. Does any nerd want to tell us what semaphore is? Okay. Uh, you know the, uh, the flag gesturing language? It was made from, from that, two overlapping uh, symbols, one for N, which is this, and then one for D, which is this. I'll hit the lights. So you, you overlap those and you get the symbol for peace. So that N and that D meant, stood for nuclear disarmament. So it's, it's become just an instantly recognizable symbol now for this peace. But what's interesting to me is that neither of these symbols, the original or the reinvented, repurposed one, point to anything that represents a full vision for peace. Nor do they point to anything that creates peace in the world. In fact, I think that what these symbols accomplish best is pointing back to the reality of those tragedies, to those, those times. Nuclear war and the threat of mutually assured destruction and a terrorist attack that claimed hundreds of lives. These symbols don't provide an answer. They only communicate that our world is broken and desperately needs to be fixed. Nuclear disarmament and the removal of terrorist threats will not bring about peace. Most of human history, for example, has been without nuclear weapons. But there was no more peace in those times than there is today. And, and even if we could take away every modern weapon in the world, nukes, bombs, chemical, biological weapons, guns, blades, if you could take away all of that, if, you still wouldn't have peace. Why? Because the problem isn't just violence. The problem is that we as human beings are corrupt people. We're sinners. And not only are we violent, we are so many other things. Greedy, envious, jealous. And so there's strife between us, even in, with the absence of any kind of weapon. Men are born 
sinners, separated from God. We are born this way, and we're under his wrath. We don't need an empty symbol. We need a savior. Turn to Luke 1. We've been going through um, Advent this year. Uh, Previous to this, we've been going through the Old Testament. And as we wrapped up the Old Testament, we got into December and we said, hey, let's spend some time focusing on Advent and the coming of Christ. So we've been doing that the last few weeks. We focused on hope a couple of weeks ago and then joy. And now we're going to turn to Luke 1. So busy talking, I didn't actually get there. Luke 1, verse... 76 through 79. Let me just give you a little bit of background. We're going to get in the middle of a a prophecy here. Um, Zechariah was a Jew. He lived in Jerusalem, and and an angel had come to him and told him that he was going to have a son, and that this son was going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And at first he doubts, but he comes around eventually. And when he does, the Holy Spirit works in him to speak about the ministry that his son, his little boy, is going to have. And so we're going to, get in the, we're going to jump in the middle of this in verse 76. He says of his son, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So he's saying that you are going to proclaim this Messiah that's going to come, and he is going to lead us. He's going to share God's mercy with us, and through that he's going to guide us into peace. If you jump forward into uh, chapter 2, several verses uh, forward, we read this last week. Um, the account of the the shepherds being visited by the angels. So chapter 2, verse 8. We read this last week. I'll reread it. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What do you think of when when you hear the word peace? Go ahead and throw out some answers. Huh? Calm. That's a good one. We're just brainstorming. No worries. This. It was actually repurposed because that was victory. Right? Nonviolence. Anything else? Absence of strife. Community. Community. That's an interesting one. <clears throat> in, in the Bible, this word is packed with meaning. 
yeah, it means a lot of the things that were just mentioned. Uh, and we could go through these. We could list some of these things out. And let's do that. Um, in the Bible, you see that peace represents several things. Um, Isaiah 2, 4 talks about uh, how there's not going to be any more war when God comes. He says, Isaiah 2, 4, He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they, shall they learn war anymore. So the absence of war, there's not going to be any war when Christ comes. He also says in Isaiah uh, 9, starting in verse 6, that God's righteousness and justice is going to rule over creation for an eternity. It says, Again, Isaiah 9, verse 6. For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So it's everlasting. It, it also speaks of harmony in creation. And this is one of the coolest pictures, I think, in, in the whole Bible. Um, in Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, he says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's cool. So you get this a picture of like everything in creation, there's this harmony and, and peace between them when Christ comes and rules. The Bible also talks about harmony with God, us having harmony with God. Um, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come and he's going to reconcile our relationship with God. He's going to give us protection and security. In Micah 5, 2 through 5, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up unto the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell securely. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Jesus also speaks in John 14, 27 about how we're not going to have anything to fear. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do, you, uh, do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You've heard me said, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. And the Father is greater than I. He, he gives them peace in difficult times. Another idea is, is this idea of perfection, wholeness, completeness, which is experienced in God's presence. There's an idea in the Old Testament, this idea of shalom is more than just, more than just the absence of bad things, it's the presence of God, which yields peace. And you see an idea of this in, in Revelation 21, 1 through 7. This is speaking of when Christ comes at the end of the world. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Really, really cool pictures that are being given to us from the Bible, from God's word, about this, this idea of peace. It's deeper than anything, I think, that the world has in mind when they think of peace. You have all these different causes in the world, and, and a lot of them are rooted in, in kind of a, a good idea. Like, they want to preserve creation. They want to, they want to make things better. They want to try to make sure that people have enough money to be fed and they want to have food for everybody and they want to make sure everybody's safe and, and, and all of those things, all of those desires that you see, social justice taking place in the world, all of that is really answered in who Christ is and what he promises to do. The kind of peace that he has in mind that is pictured here is way beyond what most people think of on earth when they want to see peace. This is deeper. It's not just the absence of a bad thing. It's the presence of God. And so we need to see it more deeply. We need to see it with, with eyes that are turned towards God's word. So one thing, though, that stuck out in my mind when I was thinking, okay, Jesus comes to bring peace, and I wasn't even sure whether I ought to talk about it, but I, it's important. We need to know. Um, later on, Jesus says something that would seem to contradict this. In Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. 
People say the Bible is full of contradictions. This would probably be one of those things. So let's see what it says and think about it for a second. Matthew 10, verse 34. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father, or whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, just kind of on the surface, I think that a lot of people would look at that and say, well, wait a second, you're saying, okay, Jesus is going to bring peace, but over here he's not bringing peace, he says he's not. He says he's going to bring a sword. Whereas in the Old Testament it said they were going to beat their swords into plowshares, like they're going to be into farm instruments. How, how do you reconcile these two things? Jesus invites the entire world to participate, to partake in the peace of salvation. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whosoever should believe in him will have eternal life. Right? So this peace of salvation is offered to the world. And that peace reconciles sinful men to their holy creator. In 2 Corinthians 5, it talks about how Christ reconciles men to the Father God. However, despite the fact that this peace is offered to everybody, and despite the fact that this peace would reconcile us to God, not everybody heeds it. Not everybody listens to Christ. Not everybody believes what he says. This creates divisions between those who believe in him and those who don't. And this division creates temporary strife, which he's discussing here. Strife between family members. However, even though you see this division, Christ says that ultimately he's going to bring all all that opposition, all of the ones who would fight against him and say, I don't believe you, I don't want your so-called peace, you can have it. Everybody who would fight against him, he says he's going to bring that opposition to nothing, which is talked about in Psalm 110. And in in doing that, he will establish an eternal peace that he talks about in Isaiah 9-7. So you get this idea that yeah, Christ is coming to, pe- to bring peace, but he's doing so in the midst of a situation where there currently is no eternal peace, right? Christ comes into the world where there is no hope of eternal peace found in themselves. And he says, I've come to bring peace. And so some say, great, we'll have it. We, we believe you. We, we want to be transformed. We, we, we want to be changed. We want that peace. But then some reject it. And so the rejection of that peace creates temporary strife that he will eventually overcome until the whole world is filled with his rule, with his glory. And ultimately will bring about peace, as it said in 
can't remember the verse. Um, Luke, when the angels were pronouncing peace, he will bring peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those who love him. Jesus says that peace won't be found in the world. It's going to be found in him. In John 16, 30, he says, Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. The disciples are speaking to Jesus. He said to them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That's what he's speaking about in Matthew 10. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so in Christ we can find peace. And so, in Christ, we have a symbol of peace. You could, if you wanted to, even use the cross. I didn't put the cross in there, but everybody has a visual. It's, we've talked about this recently, how it's kind of weird how we don't have a cross in here. Maybe one day. But you can, you can envision this, right? The cross. When you see that symbol, what do you think? I hope that among a lot of things that you might think, you would see that as peace, a symbol of peace extended to us. In that symbol, in the, in the symbol of the cross and in Christ, you see both the tragedy that you see in some of these other symbols, but you also see the answer. You see the tragedy because Christ had to come and be sacrificed. He had to lay down his own life. He had to suffer for us. And that's a statement against us saying that, look, your sin has necessitated this. And so in that, you see the tragedy. God had to come and lay his own life down. We killed him. But you also see the answer that Christ came to reconcile us. In doing that, it's like extending an olive branch to us. It's like laying down hostilities. There were hostilities there. God and men. We did not get along with God. We rebelled against God and we deserved punishment. There was hostility there. But in the cross, Christ extends peace to us. He lays it down. He lays himself down. And he says, I am offering you true peace. And so the symbol that we have is not some empty N and D standing for nuclear disarmament, as though if we got rid of nukes, then everything would be better. It wouldn't be. We have something much fuller than that, much deeper than that. We have Christ, who does way more for us than we could do for ourselves. So, how does one then experience that? Okay, so we're talking about how the, the in the cross, in Christ's life, there is peace. How, how does that happen? How does somebody experience that? We talked about this. Uh, it's kind of the same answer as last week, right? We talked about joy. So if you were here for that, the answer is similar. Uh, and you can even find it in the same, one of the same verses that we looked at. Um, Galatians 5. Verse 23, we won't read the whole thing. Or sorry, 22. 
He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of God in you is love, joy, peace. The Spirit produces these things. Christ's Spirit in us produces this peace. You also see this idea in Romans 8, verse 5, where it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So he's saying that in several different instances in the New Testament, we find that this, this peace that is talked about, this promise of peace, can only be found by being transformed by the Spirit of God. The only way that you can experience this, know this, is to have God's Spirit in you. And so how, how does that happen? How do, you, how do you get that then? Is it something you just know and then you accept it? In Ephesians 2, Paul says that Christ gives us access to his spirit. It's not something that we earn for ourselves. It's a gift from God given freely to us. And so it's not something that you have to, you have to do something for. You don't have to check off a bunch of boxes, do a list of, of good deeds to try to earn this, to get this in you. It's something that God gives to us. Uh, Peter, I know I'm, I'm providing too many verses, perhaps. Uh, in Acts 2, Peter is speaking to a group of Jews who have rejected, up to this point, Christ. They, they were involved in his murder. And he is telling them to receive the Spirit of God, to trust in Christ. And he says to them, in Acts 2, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So God, in his mercy, sends Christ as peace for us, an eternal peace, unlike anything we have ever known. He sends that Christ to us and he says, Believe in these promises. Believe in this peace. Receive my spirit. And it says here that this is for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. 
there is an element of God working in you. This isn't just some sort of mental ascent, like, oh, well, I, that sounds really nice. I'd like to play with snakes and not worry about it. Um, so I'll, I'll take it. Give me two of those, please. Um, I believe it. It's not, it's not just saying, yeah, that sounds great. I want some of that in this very consumeristic kind of way, like you're making a purchase. Like, oh, I get to make this purchasing decision. I want this. It's not like that. It's a work of God. The Spirit of God is enabled in you when the Spirit moves on you and God calls you, which it says right there, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so what that involves is, is our eyes being opened and realizing that, that Christ is everything that he says he is and that this peace that he talks about this peace both in our hearts that we can have and the peace that 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 he will bring into the world will be put into us by the spirit of god and so if you're sitting there and you're wondering how does this happen it's a work of the spirit of god And it enables in us the kind of peace that would enable us to rest, find rest in God. So that no matter what happens in the world, we could know for sure that Christ is working to bring about his good purposes and that he loves us. And that in mercy, he offered this peace to us. And so at this time of year, when we talk about Christ coming and Christ bringing peace, this is another point where we ought to be able to get really excited. We ought to be able to say, this, this is life for us. This is, this is not just some like empty symbol where we all just kind of say, yeah, wouldn't it be great if things were better? This is, this is more than that. It's, it's a tragedy but it's also an answer.